As far back as I could remember, I always wanted to be a well, the owner of a comic book store. Trust me, true believer. Well, Jagger and me, we had a running contest to see who had the most comic books in the world. Whatever, my skate was a um, comic book. Net profit to me, negative $59. I love the comics because of the brightness displayed by the fellows who drew them. They remained remain with me always, and when comic books first came into being, it drew me to them. Tales from the Comic Shop Hey, welcome to Tales from the Comic Shop, the show that takes you behind the counter. I'm your host, Joe, and today I'm joined by Eddie D'Angelini and Roger Prowse. How are you gentlemen doing? Doing good. This is Eddie, co-owner of Heidi Ho Comics in Santa Monica. And how you doing, Roger? I'm doing well. I'm uh, the co-owner of the Nerd Store in West Valley City, Utah, and the co-founder of Wasatch Comic Con. And we are joined with a couple of special guests today, one of which has been to Wasatch Comic Con. This is Mr. Phil Seavey and Drew Zucker. You guys uh, work together on The House, which is one of our best-selling horror books in my shop. Drew also is drawing Canto, which is the big breakout hit from IDW. And Phil, uh, you just wrapped up Triage, right? Yeah, yeah. So the Triage Trade was a creator-owned book that I did with Dark Horse, and it is available in shops now. It came out this summer. And also known for his work previously on Dark Horse's Tomb Raider, uh, among some other projects as well as some other creator-owned stuff, some fantastic creator-owned stuff, I might add. No, thank you. All right, so... Why don't we jump into the news? Um, Eddie and Roger, I know you guys want to talk about the immediate future for your shops with the holiday seasons. What's going on there? Yeah, kind of an interesting uh, dichotomy between my shop and Roger's. Uh, here in L.A., uh, my shop is Heidi Ho Comics in Santa Monica. And here in L.A., we are still in a shelter-in-place order. And retail businesses such as mine are only allowed to operate at 20% capacity, which is kind of stinks between, you know, right before the holidays. So there's not going to be much of a holiday season for us. And uh, it, I don't know if you guys agree, but this is my opinion. I think they should have just told us retail shops to just close down completely like they did back in March, because telling us we can stay open, but only at 20% is kind of an insult. It's really not helping us at all. So it would have been better if they would have just said close down and I would have just given my employees, uh, they would have had some time off and they would have had time off before the holidays and it kind of would have been kind of nice. But um, yeah, definitely not going to be much holiday season for us over here in Santa Monica. But Roger... I hear it's going to be different for you. Yeah, I mean, so I kind of agree with you. It needs to be more of a, this whole thing, not to get too political on here, but this whole thing has not been very well guided. It's just there's been no central guidance and everyone for themselves clearly is not the best strategy. Um, not at all. In, in Salt Lake, we're not under any orders like that. Our biggest, I mean, our biggest threat, though, is still COVID because if COVID hits our staff, you know, we end up having to... Cover time, we're running thin staff during the holidays. You know, we end up understaffed, short staff, possibly having to close due to lack of staff. So um, because of that, we're very, you know, very strict on masks as well as occupancy in our shop. So we generally have a line waiting outside the shop because we've established a max occupancy. 
and frankly, the biggest headache we have is just people getting angry and threatening us over making them wear a damn mask, um, <laughs> horrifically to the point of four or five a day at least, um, screaming, causing scenes. Like it's it's been wow. it's been ridiculous. So that's been the biggest problem for us business wise. We've actually done quite well this year. I've read um, some some surveys, economic surveys that have said that in across the nation, people about seventy percent of shoppers say that they're going out of their way this year to support small business because of the, you know, COVID and some of the, the drawbacks that that's had for small business and that they want to help it get through. And I think we're seeing a lot of that um, because our, our, our traffic, our total sales, despite not having any events or gaming, which was such a big part of our business is actually up from last holiday season. Um, wow. for this that's year. fantastic. Yeah. I, I wish I could say the same, but unfortunately because Santa Monica is such a, a heavy tourist area, uh, there's just not, very many people out on the streets at all in the city uh, where we're at where our shop is at is near the big third street promenade so usually during the holidays or any other tourist season there's just people everywhere i mean the place is flooded and right now it's just kind of a ghost town and i totally sympathize with what you're saying about being very cautious about COVID hitting your staff because I've already had two scares so far with my staff. Thankfully, they both ended up fine where both staff members were tested negative. But I have one that's still out in quarantine. So it kind of sucks because we're kind of in a weird short-staffed kind of situation right now. But at the same time, when we can only operate at 20% capacity, it almost seems to not even matter really. So I totally get what you're saying about there's no uniform policy which is what I think there needs to be across the board yeah. to keep things uh, really under control because L.A. is right next to Orange County, which is very much the complete opposite of L.A. where people fight about wearing masks, scream about my freedom, my freedom. And those people are just going in and out of L.A., you know, and there's no stopping anybody from traveling from county to county. So yeah, there's gotta be a, there's of, gotta be some sort of reasonable, logical middle ground to those types of. Yeah. Attitude. Unfortunately there isn't. I'm thankful though, that I don't have the same problem as you with people coming in and throwing a tantrum about having to wear a mask because everybody that comes in, a lot of them are, are longtime regulars. They all come in with masks and they're all respectful of our policies and everything. Uh, the only time it's ever a problem is with, the homeless people in the area that insist on coming in with no mask. But as soon as they see my wife who manages the shop with me, as soon as they see my wife, they turn around and run because they are just completely scared of her because she will come at them just <laughs> screaming to get out. So they, they just see this, this bossy little Latina coming right at them and they just turn around and take off. <laughs> yeah. Having met her, I'm not surprised. <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, um, Drew, you, uh, your day job, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, you're an EMT. Our problems with this kind of pale in comparison to yours. I certainly don't want to draw any parallels there, but you know, how do you feel when you, when you look at the situation, kind of getting that extra perspective that the rest of us don't have? It's frustrating from our end. I was talking with people at work about this yesterday. It, uh, unless you were at work with us through March and April, this was 9-11 times about 30 for us. It lasted a month, and every day it was worse and worse. You came in, the the orders were changing for us. 
you had no guidance. We were all scrounging our own, uh, our own masks, our own PPE. And everybody's got horror stories from it. And then it got a bit under control in the summer in New York, and now it's kind of back. So when we have to see people doing this kind of shit, it's just, it's so, it, it does drive home a little bit for us that like, what, what was the point of everything that we went through if this is how you're going to behave? Yeah. And especially whenever anybody was like, it's not real, I, my response was always, you were welcome to come and help move bodies. I, well, I, you, you are welcome to do it. <laughs> well, well, thank you, Drew, for working on the front line. Um, I Absolutely. Think that you guys are not getting enough appreciation for what you're doing and what you've gone through. So you were in, were you working in, are you working in Manhattan or where in New York City? I work uh, the North Bronx. Oh, okay. Um, up in Riverdale. So we, we got hit particularly hard because we cover about anywhere from 13 to 14 nursing homes in our area. Oh. And they just, they, they took the brunt of it. The nursing homes really got run rampant and then it ran rampant through uh, the projects. Yeah. So we were running back and forth between between both of them. What? No, yeah. Um, I mean, I saw, you know, seeing the video of trailers being used as morgues, just the horror stories coming from ER docs and uh, other first responders yeah. about their just their mental health, the toll it takes on your mental health. I have another friend who's a doctor in North Carolina, and he's like, he's hit, he's hit his his wits end with it because it's just an endless parade. Yeah. It, it's sad. And you know, I, I had friends on the job who killed themselves who, you know, you never would have, you never would have seen it coming. So that's just compounded and made us all realize, okay, you know, we all knew people who got sick. I mean, I personally got sick. Uh, you know, I, I would say probably about, maybe about half of my station was out at any given time, but it makes you realize the effects of this are, you know, they're long lasting and they are far reaching and it's going to be years before they have any kind of real grasp on what the effect of this was beyond just the physical aspects of it. And, and I wish more people would understand that there are long lasting physical effects for a large percentage of people who catch it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think if they would publicize that much, much more, people might be a little more, I'm hoping, be a little more cautious about what they do and where they go because they think, you know, you get them to think, I don't want to have lasting heart problems or lasting sure. lung problems because of this. It's not just like the flu where I'm going to get better in a few weeks right. and that's it. No, I, I, I was only sick for about a week and then was extremely fatigued for another week. My, I physically felt my lung capacity drop, and I'm a pretty in-shape guy. It took me the entire summer of, cardi of intense cardio three to four times a week to get it back up to normal. Yeah, and that's, yeah, I mean, the, the neurological effects are just as scary as the physical effects, like the physiological effects as far as like there are people, they're saying now there's about 10% of people who have what they're calling uh, long haulers who yeah. are, they got it, you know, all the way back in, you know, March, April, and they are still feeling the effects 
And not only that, they are having mental effects where they are having troubles with memory, gaps in memory, difficulty remembering words. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it does different things to people. And that's what that's what made it scary. I mean, it, it, from our end, we really it, it took us a little while to figure out what we were looking at because it it actually behaves differently. It, it runs counterintuitive to everything that we're taught. And that was the whole problem with it. And once you figured it out, it became easier to treat people. But the short version of this is just, you know, please wear a mask. I assure you, it is not a hoax. The, the, especially if you're young, the last thing you want is you go out, you think you're fine, it's not going to affect me. You bring it home you and you kill your parents because of it. Like it, And being young you will know, keep you safe entirely. I have a friend in her mid-20s who caught this back in like April she still can't taste or smell food and may never yeah. taste or smell anything again. And right. if you really it, think about that as a penalty, I mean, that's a big deal for the rest of your life, never having taste and smell. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, just wear your mask, people. I, I assure you it is better than the alternative. And it's don't not that hard. When they ask you to. Yeah, it, it's not a violation of your rights. Not a, you, The Disabilities Act does not cover you. You are not breathing in CO, wearing a mask. It just, just it, it's nonsense. Wear the mask. The sooner you everybody gets on board with the mask, the sooner we all get to get past this and get our lives back. Yeah. Quit complaining. You can breathe just fine with it on. And the nose mm-hmm. is connected to the lungs, so that's included in the mask. Yeah, yeah it, put it, it over your nose, please. Uh, like well, that's a little heavier than our normal yeah, but, but our normal I, content. But again, glad I could depress the conversation. Sorry, guys. <laughs> no, no, no. Thank, thank you for your perspective, Drew. It's, we need to give more people in your position a larger mouthpiece. Anything, anything. Oh, definitely. To spread that message. So, Phil, just to switch, get a little different perspective. On the creative side, sure. what has the effect of the mm-hmm. pandemic been on your job? Um, you know, that's a great question. And we could probably talk uh, a long time about that. Uh, I just wanted to add from the physical effect. So my wife is a nurse and works at a hospital here in Utah. Um, and she does not work in direct contact with uh, COVID wards. However, um, she has worked with lots of with a handful of COVID patients over the time. We all got sick in about seven weeks ago with it. Um, and our cases were fairly mild as far as symptoms go. But I am now seven weeks out and I'm still fighting changes in brain chemistry that have made life uh, a lot more difficult than it was seven weeks ago. So, again, just to emphasize the unexpected and unintended consequences of this thing, um, you really everyone. I just agree with everything everyone said. You don't know how it's going to hit you. You don't know how it's going to hit the people around you. uh, And it can have major uh, long term effects. So um, from the creative side. Um, looking at the industry, obviously, I know you guys have experienced and have probably talked a lot about the industry shutdown that happened earlier this year with Diamond uh, and, and how your stores have, have navigated that. Um, that impacted the creative side for me uh, from a large extent. I had two projects that were at various stages of either approved or in the middle of approval that kind of got um, sidelined and put on pause uh, and they have not come back together. And then with everything put on pause, I had good friends who were, you know, Marvel people and working at a variety of different companies and they were losing work. So when your your upper tier people, a big two were getting projects canceled, someone in my position, I, you know, I sat, there was no work for six plus months. 
on the creative side because you know no one had books coming out and then once books came out it took companies three plus months just to get things worked out with ordering and to get everything scheduled i was talking to an editor just the other day and she was saying how everything that they had already you know had been working on and planned for 2021 is now or plan for 2020 is now pushed into 2021 and the mm -hmm. 2021 stuff is now 2022 so there's in some areas, a large backlog of work and not a need for new stuff. Um, I think by the time the fall came around, I had a couple things uh, came to my plate that I'm working on now that won't be announced probably until 2022 at this point. Um, the upside is it, I, I just took that time a little bit to recharge, uh, examine my approach both from art and writing, um, kind of rework things that I wanted to do better, kind of reinvented my style. Uh, I spent a good chunk of the time working on the script for a graphic novel um, that was in the pitch phase. And it was like, well, I've got, you know, all this time, I might as well write the damn thing. Um, so I wrote it. I'm in the process of rewriting it. I've drawn about 20 pages of it. And, you know, there's a, there, it was a, it was a very difficult time. Um, I think not just creatively, but just across the board and across the world. Um, and sometimes it was hard to think about like, what am I going to draw today? when there was so much pain and so much difficulty worldwide. But um, I just kind of took that time to relax a little bit and not like lounging on the beach relax, but to kind of prioritize mental health and other issues around me and then kind of got back into a really nice creative groove and have probably been more productive on the second half of this year than I've been for other years in their entirety. So, so, so one of the things that I always, um, you know, really enjoyed um, talking to you and our discussions about like the industry and stuff is how you, I think, I think all the comic community is this way, but I think you really exemplify it for me as people that are really in it for the community and people that are really, you know, care and reach out to try and assist other people that are, that are in the creative fields and in, in retailers and those kind of things. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you adjusted to, to that? Cause I think that for me, that was one of the hard parts is watching the, the constant noise for lack of a better term, from all, like everyone I knew about how much they were suffering and hurting because of this professionally and, and creatively and all those things and trying to figure out my way of assisting while also not becoming bogged down in it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a good question. And I think that was a big concern. I literally had to disconnect a little bit from everything. Um, and not because I didn't care or not because I, I was in a, I guess a, a, a place of privilege where I could disconnect a little bit at times because it was very overwhelming. And I talk about that too, like the comics community itself, there was a lot of other issues that I very much dialed into outside of comics and spent a lot of time talking and reading and researching and discussing, discussing and donating money and, and seeing what I could do in those other areas. Yeah. There, there was a lot of difficulty, I think within, within comics and it was hard to, focus on like who, you know, who can I help? Where can my help be? Retailers were suffering. Uh, creators were suffering. Companies were suffering. I think, you know, I, I kind of just had to focus my energies on kind of like a close uh, circle of friends and creators um, and kind of just check in with people on that level. It was difficult. I had a lot of things lined up at the beginning of the year, not just comics, but things outside of comics that seemed to be going really well and everything collapsed rather quickly. So just learning how to navigate that and to kind of figure out where my priorities are, where I invest kind of that mental energy um, and then kind of going from there. So it, I'm interested to see how that will kind of affect things going forward. 
career-wise for this next year or two. As I've looked at some things, I'm like, oh, okay, there were certain things that I was pursuing job-wise that I'm like, okay, maybe that's really not that important, or maybe that's just not where like I fit. Uh, and just kind of reassessing where things are at. But yeah, there was a lot of creators out there who've done a lot of incredible work, um, not just, you know, reaching out to people, but ordering from shops across the nation and sending things out and supplying them. You know, Matt Rosenberg is a guy who's ordered from 40 or 50 shops across the nation. I tried to reach out to different shops outside of my local area and order from them and, you know, just see what we could do to support each other. Now, I don't know if that's a helpful or a good answer, but it's it's been such a a, a, a very long year that I'm like, I'm trying to even think of like, what phase of 2020 did I do what? Because there's been about six years worth of things happening in the last eight months. Yeah. No, that's interesting. It really has all kind of, and it all jumbles together too, because we're all in the same spot. So since you never leave, there's no yeah. markers to like delineate things. Real quick. Yeah, one, one point I'd like to... Here, let me throw this one point out, and then I definitely want to get uh, get what you're saying there. One of the things that I was able to kind of take solace in is the fact that we as an industry experience this all together. I've gone through similar, I've gone through things in my career where everything's fallen apart, and it's taken me a year plus to kind of get things back together. And that was initially my fears, like, do I have to rebuild everything again? But then I noticed, like, all of us are going through this thing collectively and the upside to that is we have each other to rely on and we'll rebuild everything together. Um, this is not like one person, you know, lost work and can't seem to find it. It's everyone is experiencing this collective difficult time and comics people in general work, you know, really hard to help support each other. So I was like, this is something as an industry, I know we can recover from because we're all going through it at the same time. Yeah. That's awesome. And calling back to something that you just mentioned, Phil, Matt Rosenberg, uh, my shop, was one of the shops that he contacted. And uh, for anyone who doesn't know who he is, he is a writer. He's done a number of different titles. And what he did when he contacted me in my shop was he wanted to buy pretty much every comic that he's written that I had in stock. Mm -hmm. And all of the customers that were doing, my regulars that were doing mail order with me, he wanted me to just put copies of his books along with all the other stuff. It's just like a little thank you, you know, a little a little kind of nice gesture. So I, I don't know if he contact, contacted you as well, Roger, over at the Nerd Store, but I'm one of the ones that he did contact nationwide. I thought that was really nice of him. Now, no, people, people forget Utah exists. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, yeah, I, I kind of wanted to switch gears and move away from the pandemic. And you're, when you were talking, so you, reminded we, uh, me, yeah. you, remind, yeah. you reminded me – that both you and Drew, you you both ha creatively wear multiple hats, which kind of gives you yep. a unique perspective on the process. And I was wondering if you both could talk about working as the writer artist versus working as the writer or the artist. Uh, yeah, totally. Um, I think that's been a big shift. And I think Drew can talk about working with, you know, our collaborations together. But like when... I think working with Drew has taught me a ton about how to write for artists, switching gears from being an artist to, you know, providing scripts. We did a, a World War II haunted house graphic novel called The uh, the House. And yeah, we worked on that thing for seven years. Um, and I think by the end of it, I learned, I'm like, learned so much about how to write for Drew and how to write for artists. Because when we started working on it, I'd only ever written for myself. 
uh, and I didn't have the concept of what my words could be seen on the page for someone else. And I think he did a hell of a lot of heavy lifting and work early on to take, you know, my, my movie screenplay approach and being like, how in the hell can I visualize this? Because CV's not writing for an artist, he's writing for a camera. <laughs> it was always fun when you get to the last panel of a page and all of a sudden an important detail would appear in that last panel that needed to be established four <laughs> or five panels ago. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. We're working on another project. We're getting ready to, to start kind of putting things together. And I've, you know, by the end of the house, we did a little epilogue that's in the trade. And I it's probably my favorite thing we worked on because by then I was like, oh, okay, I think I have a better grasp on how to write for Drew. And, and, and now I think if I have the opportunity to work with other artists, I'm, you know, my approach is very, very different in thinking about you know, how to highlight their things, how to point out what's important and how to let them add everything that they can and that they want to it. That's the fun part about comics. And I think sometimes people get this wrong and maybe it's an individual thing, but like as a writer, you are not telling the story. As an artist, you are not drawing the story. It's, it's such a collaborative thing. You together are telling a story and you need to figure out like, what are the areas that each of the collaborators has something to bring outside of that existing, like you hold pencil, you draw a line, I type keyboard, I hit word. Um, I think there's, there's can be so much of an ebb and flow between what writers and artists and colorists and letters and inkers do outside of like standard roles. Um, mm -hmm. And it depends on the individual, it depends on the collaboration, but, you know, starting to understand more of like, oh, you know, Drew is, the, you know, the artist on the house or whatever, but he has so much he can bring to the storytelling and the way we get the information and setting the mood and, oh, he's got an idea. I remember getting pages before we sent them to our letter, Frank Vetkovic, and I would look at the pages and I'd be like, oh, Drew completely like redid this, like this two page scene is now six pages, but that's like really, really cool. So I'd pull the script back up and I'd rewrite everything before I sent it to Frank to make sure it matched up. And it was just uh, opportunities to understand the different ways we collaborate or can collaborate. I, yeah, from my end, a lot of what I learned was with CV doing the house. And then when I went over to do Canto, David Boer and I have a very similar relationship, but for me personally i i'm not someone that you you hire and then think that i'm just gonna draw that's not what i'm personally interested in doing i want to have some amount of input in the story we're telling and uh ironically the house and canto both started with me but i'm smart enough to know that i can only get it so far before i need someone else to come in so when we did the house i had come up already with about a paragraph of what the story was meant to be and then i met phil and he really fleshed it out but the the spine of it more or less remained the same to that initial paragraph and canto's sort of the same way where i had a design and a paragraph of what the story was david came in and you know he rearranged stuff but the heart of what was in that initial paragraph is still very much present in the book and that's that's sort of you know that that's that collaborative nature at least within creator own comics and within the stuff i've worked on that i've been really lucky to have with people yeah and i think the only difficult thing i've found is as i switch back and forth roles wise is to when i switch back to you know the artist in on a book that has a writer i have to very much turn my writer brain off 
Um, not because I work with bad writers, I work with great writers, but my brain immediately starts wanting to rewrite everything because I'm still focused in that space. So I've had to learn every now and then how to like step back and be like, oh, wait, no, my job is to uh, find the ways to visually tell the story the best to elevate that script and not to take their script and rewrite it to be my story. So it's a little bit of a shift in space, depending on which project I'm doing, but I really enjoy being able to do different roles and it's very fulfilling in different ways. It's just, I have to, again, think about who's my collaborator, what is my role and what can I bring to this project to work with them? That's kind of an interesting point, Phil. Do you find it hard to do that? I I know a lot of creators that are very much control freaks and they want to do it all themselves and they might have a hard time collaborating with somebody. So is that difficult for you to switch that off and realize I'm collaborating? I'm only 50% of this, so I can't just completely take the reins and take control of this. I think early on in my career, it was a difficult switch. Now I've gotten to the point where I think, you know, every comic creator early on, the the projects they work on, they they mentally treat it like this is the last thing I'll ever do in comics, which is great from an effort standpoint, but it's bad from a collaborative standpoint because you fight everything to death because you're like, this is, you know, the, my magnum opus when it's like, no, there's going to be another book. There's going to be another project. You do your best work and then you move on to the next one. So as I've worked a little bit longer in comics, I've, I've learned how to let go of certain uh, amount of preciousness and not necessarily push back or even fight with collaborators over something. Like if they have an idea that I don't necessarily jive with, I'm like, you know what, let's give it a shot. If it doesn't work, that's okay. We'll, you know, I'll learn from that. And hopefully the next project I do, whether with this creator or whether by myself, it'll be better. I don't feel the same necessity to die on a hill like I did years earlier. I'm a little bit more relaxed now in that respect. Was there any other time though, where you felt I have to put my foot down on this one. Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I have. Because <laughs> I could imagine that as a creator, you feel that the story or the art has to be a certain way to make the story work. And if your partner is going in a different direction, I got to imagine there has to be at least one instance where you got to put your foot down and say, no, you don't understand. You don't get it. It has to be this way. Um, I mean, I probably have, I don't think I've ever won those fights. Um, and I know Drew and I, uh, you know, so Drew and I have worked together just as, as peers for every day for 10 years. Now we talk. And I think even in the house, there was times we fought over stuff. Um, and I'm sure in our next project, we will fight over stuff again. Like, I think we're, we're always trying to come up with the best product and you're not going to win every fight and that's okay. Uh, I think, you know, working on Tomb Raider, you're working with a licensor um, and essentially they, they own everything and everything that you do has to be approved by them. So there were times we got pushback on things or we had planned specific things. And then when we got to the moment, they came back and told us to change it. Um, when it was like, this is what we've been planning for three to six or 12 months. And if we change it now, it feels like you're, we're completely reworking the climax of a year long story. But in the end, you know, we had to change it because you, you, that's who your client is. So it's the and difference they have to between, sell toys. Yeah, it's the difference between work for hire and creator owned. And, and I think when you're working on creator owned books, you want to work with someone, you know, that even if you fight on something, you'll find the way to make it work. So you, you know, you don't abandon the project and it just gets stuck. That's interesting. You actually just kind of answered one of our questions that we had for you. Um, 
Yeah, I just deleted it from the list. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks a lot, guys. Your your uh, your your Tomb Raider run it was at like a heightened time of focus on the franchise. Rise of the Tomb Raider had just come out, which was like one of the most critically acclaimed of the game series in decades. Mm-hmm. And the movie, mm-hmm. like the production of the movie had just started, I believe. So you were kind of sandwiched in there where there was a lot of heat and focus on the IP for the first time in a while. Did that affect your approach? You know, on the Tomb Raider projects, I got to work with some phenomenal writers. Mariko Tamaki is one of them. Colin um, Kelly and Jackson Lansing was the the second uh, pair of writers that I had to work with. Um, and I think creatively, the writers were the ones typically who had to go to bat or, and or change, make more changes than I did. Um, I had aesthetic changes as I had to get the look of the character right early on, kind of get into that groove. And then story-wise, as stuff came up a little bit later, I would kind of put my voice into the mix. But I didn't have to go... I didn't have as many face-to-face fights. Um, or not even fights, but just like discussions about things that we disagreed on. I think our editor acted as a mediator between that. Um, and I know, you know, Mariko and Colin and Jackson uh, were more involved kind of in the, the, the push and pull of trying to find the right balance of a creative story that felt with that fell within the line of like the brand management of the character. And it was it was tough. It, it's a tricky thing. And no one's a bad guy in those stories. Everyone is just trying to come up with the best version of what they can do. And it, it doesn't always line up. That actually, that character had kind of undergone a complete overhaul aesthetically. Did you have any input into the new look of Laura Croft coming from her giant poly, polygon boob face to the current <laughs> the current look? Uh, <laughs> no, no. I, I, I came in right as they were getting ready to launch Rise of the Tomb Raider, which is the second game in the new trilogy. Uh, they had already done all the redesigns. Um, conceptually, we just got art from the the video game team at Crystal Dynamics. Um, they like, here's our here's our model sheets. Here's the designs we've done. Um, and then my job was just to try and draw the character as on model as possible for that project. I just since you just mentioned her, I just want to talk briefly. I mean, we talked about it last week, but Mariko has become the first woman to take over Detective Comics in the 80 year history of Batman. And it's actually the first time a woman's written the uh, written either of the tentpole bat books. Do you have an opinion on her cracking the glass ceiling over at DC? Um, I'm, uh, my only opinion is that I'm super excited to see what she does. Um, when I came on to Tomb Raider, she had just won the Eisner for this one summer. Uh, then we worked together for 12 issues on Tomb Raider. And then obviously she's she went on to do a bunch of Marvel work. Um, Laura Dean keeps breaking up with me. And then moving over to DC to do uh, Harley Quinn's... Uh, was it Breaking Glass? Is that what it's called? I'm yeah. suddenly blanking on it. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, and like I picked that book up last year I because, mean, I mean, I loved working with Mariko and I was like, I want to see what this is. And th- it, it, that's the best Harley Quinn book I've ever read. And I'm not even like a giant Harley Quinn fan. I was so blown away. Um, so she's incredible. Um, collaborative wise, like I loved working with her. Um, and it's, it's not like Mariko and I are best friends. We worked together for a year on that and we will see each other occasionally. But she was an awesome collaborator. Um, kind of going back to that point I mentioned earlier. You know, we started on the project. She'd been working on it for a couple months. I came in right at the last minute um, to hop on and draw the book. We met over um, like a Skype call and talked about kind of like, 
I just wanted to know, like, what do you see in your head when you're drawing these things? Who are the artists you're kind of inspired by? What can I, you know, how can I match what you have in your head on the page? Uh, and from there, like she, the, the more scripts we wrote and the more we worked together or she wrote and the more we worked together, um, she just gave me more and more creative control over the storytelling. And as a, as a storyteller, I love that. Not every artist is that way. Some artists very much like to have uh, a lot of information about like, you know, how their shots are and how things look on the page. And the longer we worked together, there was times she would write like, you know, pages 14 and 15, they fight, do your thing, Phil. And then she would move on. And to me, that was the, like the, the greatest kind of um, compliment I could be given from a collaborator that they trusted how I would approach the story and the storytelling. And we worked out a lot of really cool kind of storytelling uh, approaches in that book. And um, it just, it was, it was a fantastic experience. So some of my favorite things, I think the second to the last issue we did, there was like an eight or nine page sequence in the beginning of issue 11. And she just said, all right, Phil, like they get in a warehouse and they're going to fight, do whatever you want. Um, here's some important pieces of dialogue, but like go to town. And I think I did like 75 panels across those eight pages or something or seven pages. I just, I got to break things down as crazy as I wanted. Um, so she was very, very trusting. Um, and I, when she she left the book, um, she actually recommended me to the editor to take over writing, which again, I, I thought was, was an incredible compliment um, because I don't think really at that point I had anything published writing credit very big. And it didn't go that way. The editor and Crystal Dynamics went in a different direction, but to have someone of Mariko's caliber um, you know, trust me with the visuals for so long and then recommend that I take over writing and drawing the book uh, after she left was was just really really cool she was she's always been fantastic she has a really great voice she is very progressive and kind of um very much pushes uh to find to give a voice to to a different group of, of readers as well as you know writing just really great stories so i'm super stoked that i'm going on forever but dan moore is drawing the book dan moore is amazing and yeah i'm just, i'm just excited yeah i'm i'm really i'm a big bat fan and i'm very much looking forward to see where tech goes. So, Drew, The House was one of the Nerd Store's best-selling horror books. And I know that with a self-published book, it's hard to get support or even get it on shelves. Can you talk about the difference between self-publishing your own title versus working with a publisher? When you self-publish, you are every ounce of that apparatus that a publisher has. You are distribution, marketing you know, production, shipping and handling, the entire thing. If you have a publisher, all that stuff is taken care of for you. You have access to things that most small, most, you know, self-published books don't have access to, namely Diamond. And you have a name from a, a publisher that goes a really long way on an IP that people don't know. So I had, prior to the house, I had a book, uh, with Monkey Brain Comics uh, called Skybreaker that was then picked up by IDW. Uh, and even with that, it the book, you know, did okay, but it really didn't go anywhere. When we did The House, it was a chance to, you know, explore what it was like to have to wear all of those different hats. But yeah, that, I mean, that was, it, it's it's hard. I will say that. It is a lot of work. It is worthwhile work. But you have to be, it, it is not a put it on the internet and hope for the best sort of deal. Uh, 
you, you guys hit the pavement pretty hard on that one. We, we did. And even we saw – so to tie this into the current state of the comic industry. Yeah. I personally saw an – I saw a window when COVID started and Diamond shut down. And I shared it with Phil, and the end result was really good for us. When Diamond shut down, there was an opportunity with the shops that they all needed product. So I'm not diamond, I'm not shut down, and I still have a post office and a ton of books to sell. So we began that process of reaching out to retailers, not just out of our own benefit, but to also make sure that we could help the retailers have something new in store that they would be able to move that would at least mitigate some of the damage being done to them. The end result of it was, you know, I think the house trade is now two, three years old, and it had its best year it's had since its initial release. Wow. Yeah, we shipped out hundreds of copies of that this yeah. year because um, I, I have the bulk of the books in my basement because I've got a little bit more space than Drew does in New York, but both of us were just shipping out boxes during the mm -hmm. summer as lots of retailers reached out. And then they, you know, retailers are amazing, especially when, you know, they know the product and it works for their stores. We had people would sell, order 10 or 15 They'd be sold out within an hour. They'd turn around and order 10 or 15 more. And just kind of this, this repeated cycle of, of great retailers uh, that Drew reached out to and connected with. And then, you know, finding the right shops and then pushing, you know, uh, pushing is the wrong word, but doing a really good job hand selling our product to their customer base. So I'm glad you guys brought up that point because I wanted to stress that with the pandemic, there still, I think, was a little bit of a glimmer of light, especially for creators. And Drew, you mentioned that there was a window for you guys. And I wanted to make a point that actually I saw two windows. Uh, besides being a retailer, I myself am also a self-publisher. And I saw a lot of my uh, creator friends doing one of two things. They were contacting retailers outright and just bypassing diamond altogether while it was closing and also a lot of people uh, a lot of writers creators that i know were also just flooding kickstarter with new projects yeah and um that was actually people thought well during a lockdown people don't have money that's the worst time to do a kickstarter it was exactly the opposite because without diamond and without a weekly product coming out creators found a way to market their stuff directly to the consumer and bypass, uh, sad to say, the distributor and the retailer to get it directly into people's hands. Sure. And it worked. So I, I, I have this whole thing about where the industry's at and Diamond and the shutdown. It may make me a little unpopular. I have for years felt like Diamond was the hindrance within this industry. It never did us favors that we have a single distributor. And my hope had been that when DC left, that it would force competition within Diamond. And it would make them work harder to realize, oh my God, one of our largest accounts just walked out the door. By all accounts, this appears to be the opposite. Yeah. The other end of it, though, is from the creator side and the, re and the retailer side. I understand how scary it is for everyone because the reality is that the industry went through about 10 years worth of inevitable change in the course of three months. Mm -hmm. That is a hard thing for everyone on all sides to come to grips with. 
I personally think that though that this has been ultimately a benefit for the industry because it, we've seen the growth of the indie market uh, as a result of all of this. Books going on Kickstarter, by all accounts, have not robbed the retailers of much of anything, especially stuff with uh, the book uh, Scott Snyder's doing in uh, the Berserker book, where they're offering retailer, you know, tiers. Yes. And that's the one thing that I tell people who do Kickstarters is always offer a retail tier. Always. From mine and CV's end, I don't think that was something that when we did it was even on the radar of things to do. But my hope is that going forward, all these new avenues that help to, you know, create direct to consumer or grow the consumer base that they all stick around, but don't rob the retailers of, you know, of, of helping them out, especially considering that everybody's going to be kind of playing catch up for the next year or so. I think ultimately it's a good thing that the industry has more options without gatekeepers, uh, because ultimately it just, it grows things. So, uh, Drew, how did you, uh, guys get a home, uh, with IDW for Canto? How did that come about? Uh, we had been pitching Canto. Well, David and I had been pitching it all over the place, and it got uh, it got close in a few in a few uh, publishers, uh, and ultimately, we ended up pitching to IDW uh, because David was friends with Ben Bishop, thinking that oh, we're friends with Ben, this will help get us in the door, and they were like, cool, all right, we're gonna put it on the uh, on the pile. It's like, God, oh, great. So ultimately, IDW came back to us and they offered us a deal that was everything we could have wanted for the book. Uh, and then once we signed with them, they they just kind of they stayed out of our way and let us do our thing until we were ready to go. That's that's really how we ended up with them. We went through the same pro- pitch process that everyone else goes through. And we're just extremely lucky that we came out the other end of it. Yeah, last time I saw you, I think it was at Emerald City when you guys were promoting Canto and you were just getting ready to launch. Yeah, so Emerald City was really interesting because that's where we were getting ready to launch the book. We had our announcement at Emerald City and the announcement did no press. It did absolutely nothing. But at Emerald City, we met uh, Stephen Scott, who worked with uh, George Takei on They Call Us Enemy. And Stephen was a publicist at the time, uh, in addition to his writing stuff. And when we saw the announcement just fall flat, we actually hired him as our publicist. And he completely changed the game of what we were doing uh, prior to FOC and launch. I think that must have been right when I talked to you, because I remember you guys uh, mentioning that you found a publicist. And I remember you being feeling really confident and uh, it seemed like you guys had a lot of energy, you know, at that moment that I talked to you about it behind the book. And, it, you know, it seemed to pay off because it was it was really I think the level of success you guys achieved really uh, was surprising to a lot of people for such a, you know, in, in niche and kind of like individually, you know, a new IP. Uh, were you guys surprised at the level of, of success that you reached by it? And, um, you know, what do you think that was done from a marketing standpoint that created that success? We we were surprised. Um, you know, 
and Phil can attest to this, you really kind of work in a bubble on this sort of stuff because you're by yourself, you know, 95% of the time. I mean, like, like me and Phil, I speak to David nearly every day. So we're both kind of just feeling the same vibes. When the book came out and, you know, you're seeing sell out, sell out, sell out, and you're realizing, oh my God, this is like the hot thing of the week. You process that in your head, but you don't really process it. You know what I mean? So for us, it wasn't until we went to San Diego and we we had a signing. And Joe Hill and Gabe Rodriguez were signing right before us. And Walt Simonson was signing next to us. And I was like, oh, great. So we're going to get like five people, uh, three of which are going to be holdovers from Lock and Key. And they're going to think David and I are Joe and Gabe. And ultimately, we got there, and there was a line around the booth, and that's, I think, the moment we realized, oh, this actually may have some legs to it that we didn't. I was at that signing and tried to talk to you guys, and there was no getting over it, to you. It was I, – I, neither one of us was prepared for what that signing was or how San Diego went in general. Um, as for hiring Steven and bringing in outside PR, it was – without a doubt, the single best decision that we made for this book short of deciding that we were going to physically make it. Um, it changed the entire game for us. It is something that I personally will not do a creator own book without doing again. Um, it's my own money and David's money that we invest into this stuff. And it is a completely worthwhile investment. And that's not to knock IDW or any publisher I ever work with. The reality of the situation is that these companies are not as big as people might like to think they are. And neither is the comic industry for that matter. Very true. IDW has things that have to be priority for them that are of great value to them. Lock and key, anything Joe Hill is doing, their licensed stuff. These are things that are clearly worth a great deal of money to them. And, you know, I can't fault anyone as from a business end for that being your focus. But to that end, it then leaves stuff like Canto to potentially fall by the wayside. For us, for me and David, we really decided if we want to break through some of the noise, the best thing we can do is bring somebody in who has our best interest at heart. And as a result, it it led to a lot of press being done that I don't think would normally have been done for a book like this. It got us to do interviews that we wouldn't have normally done. And just, you know, bringing in somebody who is well-versed in this industry and has done this for a while, it lent, it lent credibility to us when he went to his contacts and went, hey, I have this thing. I believe in it. You know, do, are you guys interested in doing this? I wanted to ask you about this. That kind of leads me into this. I mean, the commitment to your creative career is got to be, you know, a full-time job plus 20 hours a week minimum. How do you find a work-life balance between your day job, your creative job, and then just having some kind of personal life? Uh, I do a bad job. It's mostly run on caffeine and rage. <laughs> Uh, no, it, it's actually, it, I, I have been a part of, you know, first responder emergency service community since I was 18. So it's a balance. I've always, I, I've, I'm very good at compartmentalizing that side of my life. 
it it really comes down to how I prioritize things. And I'm very lucky. I have a wife that is super understanding of all this and, you know, completely gets that if I don't have a creative outlet in addition to, you know, just going to work, that it will it, it will probably destroy me if I'm not able to to do that stuff. It ultimately comes down to though, you you have to be committed to what you're doing. I love making comics, and in particular, I love drawing Canto. I have drawn 200 pages of that book. I am not sick of it by any stretch of the imagination. It is still fun for me. There are times where it's a grind just based on schedules and the amount of work that can be required. But, you know, to anyone that that's looking to find that balance, you know, you ultimately need to know how to focus your time and just how to really commit into what you're doing. And if this is what you want to do, then, you know, you find jobs that work with that other side of your life. Yeah, and it shows. I mean, the the art on Canto is just extremely intriguing. When I see it, it just makes me want to jump in and start start pouring through it. So it, it's it shows in Thank your you. work. It's definitely excellent. Agreed. I, I I appreciate it. And you know, it it's one of those things. I'm never satisfied with myself. I I go back and I've looked at the first issue of uh, Hollow Men, and I, I I'm like, there there are things that I would change. Uh, if they gave me the chance to do it, but you know, that, that sort of mindset always keeps me getting better. And it always has me with something to strive towards. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that any kind of creative endeavor, it's important to, uh, not, not, not be satisfied, but just always have something you can work towards. Oh, yeah, no. I, and no, a hundred percent. It goes a long way to helping maintain your sanity also <laughs> that you have an outlet. All right. Well, we're heading towards the end. I've got a couple questions for both of you and then we will let you get on with your lives. What is something in your job that you think people don't understand and wish they understood better? That depends. Which job? <laughs> <laughs> your job is an artist. You're the comic industry. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, we already covered what people don't understand and won't do in your other job. Because <laughs> that one, that one's really long. Yeah, I bet. I want to hear it. Uh, Phil, you want to go first? Uh, yeah, I mean, ugh, I I have to think. Um, the thing off the top of my head, my favorite aspect of making comics is just visual storytelling, and that is the process of deciding what panels and what angles and what shots and how those go together to create a page and how that goes to your two facing pages and how that goes to a scene and an entire book. And there is so many elements that go into visual storytelling. And that is my favorite part of drawing a comic. Uh, it's not the pretty pictures. It's not the cover. It's not the rendering. It's not, it's getting a story to work really well. And it's such a unique and specific skill set to comics that I think unless you are looking for it or studying it, it becomes a kind of an invisible art. Uh, and there's artists that I see that are incredible draftsmen or, or whatnot, but are terrible storytellers. And I think, oh. you know, that for me personally, like, like that's the most important part of comics. And I think that's one of the more invisible aspects of comics. Um, I've, I've been teaching comics art for ugh, seven and a half years now. 
spent a couple years at a college and now I'm doing online courses with comics experience. And it's my absolute favorite thing to teach to just unlock the sheer amount of complexity and decision-making and, and, and how difficult it is to tell a story in comics. And so many, and a lot, my, a lot of the students who take visual storytelling are just like, whoa, I had no idea this was so difficult. Um, and Drew and I both attended the Savannah College of Art and Design, That's kind of how we met each other. Um, and just the intense amount of study that I did on visual storytelling, both as a student and then as a professional still to this day, I think it's the aspect that your average reader and even, you know, your early on aspiring artists, uh, it might be a concept that they're just not quite um, as aware of how impactful and important it becomes. Uh, and that's that's my favorite thing about comics. So that might be the one thing that I'm like, well, maybe some people don't know, understand this as well as they could. Yeah, I, I'm I, shaking my head furiously right now, Phil. No, it's, I couldn't agree People more. don't understand that a, yeah. a comic artist needs to be a storyteller first and artist mm -hmm. second. Yeah. Well, one thing, one thing for me is just the evolution of how comic or how comics have evolved. When DC Universe dropped, I went back and I started reading Batman, um, both tech and Batman from the beginning. And it's oh, wow. just like the slog of going through those stories because yeah. the the pictures don't even really tell the story in, in, at that point because they have literally, you know, like the yellow narration boxes that tell you what's happening in every picture. <laughs> and um, in modern comics, that doesn't exist anymore. Now you can like you could read a comic cover to cover almost without even reading because the pictures yeah. do such a good job of narrating the story for you. Yeah, my goal when I'm drawing a comic is always like when my writer gets the pages and does a dialogue pass, which would be rewriting the dialogue to fit the art or change it before they send it to a letterer, which hopefully all your writers are doing. If you're not, do that. Um, my goal is that they cut dialogue out, that I draw it in such a way that they're like, oh, it's redundant for me to have this character say this thing. And whether they do or not, that's fine. But that's my goal is to like, can I draw this in such a way where I don't need the dialogue? where you know it's more impactful just to watch it as a as a sequence so <laughs> oh yeah and books work so much better when the exposition is carried by the artwork instead of by dialogue yeah like, i always laugh at some of the old silver age comics where you are watching a character do a particular act <laughs> and his thought bubble is actually saying the exact same thing that yeah. he's doing yeah that as well <laughs> it's a hard thing for writers to to learn that you just because you took a step back and your words are not visually on the page doesn't mean that you aren't being you aren't a part of the process um i actually think the best modern example of this is uh the pizza dog issue of hawkeye oh yeah which is you know kudos to matt fraction whatever you think of him that's a brave step for a writer to take that you are gonna all of your work is under the hood and none of it is up front that is kind of you know the essence of of good comic storytelling yeah no there's a few issues of tom king's batman run where you can literally read the book in a minute flat because there's that little mm -hmm. dialogue and it's just the art yeah. telling the story and i enjoy it yeah i know a lot of people complain that they spent four dollars and the comic only lasted three minutes, but I think I then was, you went too fast and you weren't appreciating the art. Exactly yeah, that, and less can be more, and more can be less. It's just whatever serves the story best is what I want for my four dollars. Right. right. 
Yeah, it's yeah, not... it's the same as when if you go see a movie and there are scenes where nobody is talking but action is happening, the viewer doesn't get mad saying, "Well, how come no one's saying anything?" That's similar to this situation where people pick right. up a book like that and they think, "Well, there's nothing to read here." No, you're missing the whole story by not using your eyes, I guess, and really appreciating what you're seeing. No, exactly. Or like the extended cuts of movies where they just throw in stuff that ruins the timing of the movie because they need the extended edition to sell more copies of the DVD. Well, so, we have to get you to buy it twice. Yeah, exactly. Here's looking at you, Godfather 3. <laughs> or Apocalypse Now Redux. Yeah. I, I actually... I actually love the Redux version. So oh, I'm not there's gonna... 30 minutes of that French scene that's so unnecessary. <laughs> it's the very know, cover I... of movies. But I like it anyways. <laughs> Fair enough. It's so weird, but I like it. <laughs> it just kills the flow for me. I mean, so it, yeah. at my age, the Redux came out when I was like 14, 15, and that's the original version of the movie I saw. And so yeah. I was like, what's the big deal about this movie? It's really weird and long and like it doesn't flow that well. <laughs> and then I saw the original version probably five years later. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> what a different experience that is. <laughs> uh, this one is also to both of you. And we did touch on this a bit uh, throughout the interview. But do do you have a basic idea or thought of where you see the comic industry heading, especially after this pandemic and beyond? Uh, yeah, I do. I, I, I saw this, I saw this with Canto's success and it was something that was kind of out of sight to me until, uh, you know, I had a book that even went near this level. It's that I, Ultimately, I think the industry is going to be fine. I think you're going to see more indie titles actually come in and probably be far more successful than they ever would have been. The splitting up uh, from of DC and Diamond kind of, you know, even though DC is still around, it opened up this interesting, uh, you know, void that appears to be there, even though it really isn't. But it seems to be doing good things for, for indie books. I also think you're going to just see comics long term begin to go into other markets so the industry won't just be necessarily the direct market it'll be or or even the book market it's going to be there are going to be a few other markets out there that involve this product and not necessarily movies you know my experience with it was that there's there's money to be made it just may not always be from the shops necessarily and I think that's something that as the world saw that having one pipeline of something isn't a good idea, you're going to start to see not just us, but multiple industries diversify themselves. I, you know what? I agree with that. And I see a lot of shops when people mention something like that get scared because they think, well, no, they need to come to the shop to buy this. What sure. they don't understand is if there's more outlets for them to experience this type of thing the books the characters everything it only is going to serve to bring more people to your business as well exactly it's the, it's the, literally the, the old saying of uh the high tide raises all boats it, exactly i mean you you guys own a sh own shops you've seen it if i were to influx your shop with a with five thousand people in a day 
there would be no physical way for you guys in theory to handle such influx. Plus LA County would shut me down because it's well it, over it, the 20%. It, there, there you go. You know, it, the, the reality is that, you know, everyone, I, I get everyone's gripes with like Midtown, but like someone like Midtown, Midtown has grown themselves to have their own infrastructure within their three, their three shops and within their website. The reality of it is that, you know, that's what you sort of need at large scale in order to just grow the industry. The industry mm -hmm. isn't that big. It's an almost billion dollar industry, but a billion dollars in the grand scheme of the world is, you know, nothing. Sure. And also yeah, and if you're mad at Midtown, you're mad at somebody who found a way to do what you really want to do as well. Yeah. Right. And I think my my thoughts on this, and I think Drew also brings up a lot of good points. He and I talk about this a lot. I think in the last year, well, I mean, in general, I, I've 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 been less concerned with trying to figure out where the industry is going, mm -hmm. um, just because I as as important as the discussions are, especially from a retailer standpoint, you are like my favorite retailers and the ones I see the most successful are the ones who are always thinking, what can I do different tomorrow to make my shop better, and I yeah, think my exactly. least favorite retailers are the ones who are like, I'm doing it the same way I've been doing it since 1985. Um, but you know, I, I've been, you know, you, you hear prognosticators talking about comic book industry for as long as I've been reading comics and 99% of them are wrong entirely as time goes on. And that's part of just trying to predict the future. It's not futile, but you know, there's elements that I think for me, I'm all, I'm, I've been focused more on this year to think about what does my future in comics look like? Um, and how can I, produce the type of content that works best for me that will reach an audience what's an avenue that works well what doesn't work well um it, you know drew and i have done a lot of creator own work i've done a bunch of work for hire work um, and it's just mainly trying to figure out like what is the smartest move for me and not necessarily in like a selfish way right um, anytime someone succeeds in comics like you guys mentioned uh rising tide lifts all boats you want people to succeed in comics so what am i how am i approaching this book or my career or this thing in a way that makes it successful, that makes it a hit that helps, um, bring, um, you know, visibility to other books. Um, like Drew talked about his and David's work with, um, their promo on Canto and working with, um, their PR person that massively lifted the visibility of the books, which helped IDW, which has helped other creator own kind of similar titles as well. Um, so I, I'm a little bit less, spending energy myself personally on like, where's it going to go? And more so like, what is the best avenue for me to take? Uh, because for every like, oh, comics are going this way, I will talk to salespeople or marketing people or publishers who will be like, that's a nice idea, but that's not working right now. We've been trying this for five years and no one realizes we've been trying. Um, so I think there's, there's so many different ways to go. I think we definitely need to spend time being forward thinking, but as individual creators, I'm like, what's going to work best, you know, to get this story. Is it going to be best as a single? Is it going to be best as a graphic novel or webtoons? Is it going to be Kickstarter? Is it going to be image comics? Is it going to be sold out of my trunk, you know, at a, at a flea market? Um, just trying to, and not that people don't do that, but I'm like, that's where I think I've realized this year I need to focus on is, is thinking about what are the stories I want to tell? What are the best ways to tell those stories? And how is it the best ways to get those stories to the people and trying to utilize the lessons we learned from 2020 to look <laughs> at all the different avenues of getting that out there? 
Yeah, and don't knock selling your book out of a trunk at no. Swap Meet because I've Not done somewhat similar and it works. <laughs> it does. <laughs> but I mean, that's what the house was. <laughs> yeah. To, and to your point, uh, 2020 is teaching us a lot of lessons because in 2020, we saw the industry change at a very rapid pace, more so than I think people were able to predict. So really, should we spend our time as creators and retailers sitting back and trying to predict exactly where the industry is going to go? Or should we just, to use the Southern California analogy, ride the wave and let it let it take our board where it's going to go instead of trying to fight and go the opposite direction? It, this is the moment for comic creators to kind of step up and grow the industry. They can't make a ton of movies right now. And it is a laborious task with COVID restrictions. Comics are very simple to make and they are very simple to distribute and to sell mm -hmm. either online, free web comics, comicsology, whatever you want to do. It, it, and I think that's part of why we're seeing sales begin to bounce back is that people are home. They've gone through everything Netflix has to offer and everyone else. And now they're, they're looking for new stuff and there is, an entire world. I, I've told people this before. The best fiction that you will probably ever find is in indie comics. And, you know, I think studios are beginning to realize that too with some of the stuff that they're picking up. So, you know, if, if you have ideas, this is the time to be getting them out there. Oh, definitely. And it takes little to no effort. Got the talent? So we want to finish this out. We like to ask all our guests this question. Can you guys both tell us someone in the industry, either someone you've worked directly with or are familiar with that you think is underappreciated for their impact on the comic industry and comics as a whole? Drew, do you want to talk about Tom so I don't cry on I was gonna. I, I was going to say Tom. <laughs> you, you go for that one and then I'll add someone. All right. So Phil, the way Phil and I actually met each other was uh, – through Tom Lyle, who was uh, a professor at SCAD where I did my undergrad and Phil was a graduate student. And Tom was a colossal pain in the ass. <laughs> but he was an extraordinarily talented Spider-Man artist in the 90s. And for whatever reason, you know, he came after Todd McFarlane, but... I've gone back and looked at a lot of the stuff that was around when during his era of Spider-Man. And I think Mark Bagley gets a lot of credit because they were around the same time. Bagley gets a lot of credit, but man, Tom's fucking influence on Spider-Man, you can still see it today. You can see it in the 90s cartoon. That guy just, I think, I, you know, I think he burned some of his bridges professionally but his influence is just unbelievable when it comes to what he did for that character and for comics. I, I think he really, he set a standard of quality uh, of as a draftsman, but also as a storyteller, because Phil talked about storytelling before that's where that, you know, regard for storytelling comes from for both of us is, is that's directly born out of Tom. You know, and after Tom's time at Marvel in DC, um, he uh, moved over to SCAD. And I think Tom taught there, was it 13 years, maybe more? 13 years. 
Um, and you know, his main classes were the visual storytelling classes. And I, I took a Tom Lyle class every semester I was at SCAD, whether it was, um, an actual class or whether I just spent all the time in his office, helping him with things. Um, and you know, Tom passed away last year. Um, he had a, uh, kind of a very sudden stroke, uh, was into a coma and then just never came out of it, passed away about six weeks later. Um, and it was, it was, he was a very healthy guy. It was very sudden and very tragic, but as, as we talked about it online, um, you know, I think some of our social media accounts were kind of the, uh, they got picked up by every comics news source just because we were close to Tom. I talked to Tom all the time. So did Drew, um, you know, just the amount of people in the industry, both creatives who went to SCAD. Uh, mm-hmm. fans who've known Tom, you know, had met him in the, the 80s, 90s, 2000s, everything, the amount, uh, writers as well, just the impact he had, I think. We, we laughed um, that it, it took for, it took sadly for Tom dying for Tom to see how, how much of an impact that he had on the industry. So <clears throat> that's, I think that was, I was like, yeah, that'll be, that'll be our, our definite person um, yeah. for, for, decades to come his influence will be felt in the generations of artists he trained and the 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 years of the decades of fans he he inspired and we used to watch him at shows because you know we set up at new york comic-con near him at times i shared a table with him once or twice just the line of people at his table at all times with long boxes full of comics he was the one who designed the scarlet spider costume that ben riley had during the clone saga he launched the robin miniseries with chuck dixon he relaunched starman back with uh, roger stern and like his impact is is felt today stronger probably than ever and i don't think he quite gets the the recognition that he deserves, but I'm sure time will vindicate him both from a fan point and then from the legions of creators that he inspired and trained. Which Robin miniseries? Um, well, one, I Plus? believe this was... It, it was Robin and then Robin 2. I, I think oh, this okay. was the introduction of Tim Drake. Yeah, yeah. I, no, I know. I know. I think it's Robin and Robin 2, The Joker's Wild. Is that the one? Yeah, that's it. Okay. Yeah, I'm very so, yeah. Yep. Okay, that's that's awesome. I'm I'm sorry for you guys' loss, um, but that was a lovely tribute to the man, and uh, we appreciate you sharing yes. it with us. So, um, I think we're going to wrap things up here. You guys want to tell people where they can follow you at on social medias and plug any projects that you have? I'm just at Philip CV on Twitter. I'm at Philip CV comic art on Instagram. My website is philipcv.com. Those are the places you can follow me. I inked issues three and four of Canto volume two. Three is out. Four will be out in just a few weeks. Just helping a little bit of Drew out this year as he, you know, not only is handling a massive creator on book, but also, you know, COVID in New York City. So it was fun to jump in and help a little bit on that. As far as projects go, uh, the things that I'm working on right now won't be announced for a while, so I can't speak to that. But obviously, if you have not read a copy of The House, you can reach out through either Drew or my website and order one. Or the Nerd um, Store. I did a book or the Nerd <laughs> Store or you know any any shop. If you want your shop to carry it, just ask your shop to reach out to us. We are love to get uh, copies to retailers. Um, I'm actually going to be doing that because uh, Roger has been just going on and on how great that book is. And we don't have it at Heidi Ho in Santa Monica. So I'm going to be contacting you guys. Yeah, Eddie, get a, copy for, get a copy to send to me too, please. Definitely will. 
Uh, if you are a retailer, also please reach out to us directly before you order. We are for retailers. We do fifty percent off uh, the cover price for you guys. All right, I heard that. There's that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think. I, I did a see. So I just uh, had a creator-owned miniseries that I wrote, penciled, inked, and colored called Triage that came out through Dark Horse Comics. Uh, the trade is in in stores now. You can order that. Um, I had a one-shot sci-fi uh, book that I did that Source Point Press published at the beginning of the year called Paradox. You can pick that up. Um, I think all of those are all still in print right now and have not sold out their print run. So that's kind of where you can find me and and some of the work that I've done that's out this year and then. I'll hopefully have new stuff to announce in the next year that I'm working on right now. And what about you, Drew? All right. Uh, we got a bit of a list to get through. <laughs> Let's um, hear it. Canto 2, uh, The Hollow Men is currently uh, on shelves. Issues 1, 2, and 3 have been released. Issue 4 actually hits shelves uh, on, the, on December 30th. And then uh, issue 3 and 4, both inked by uh, CV over here. Issue 5 will FOC on... Uh, January 4th, so be sure to get in uh, pre-orders to anyone who, to any of your shops. It helps us immensely. It helps the shops immensely. And generally, you get a discount. Uh, January, we are going to have some pretty major Canto announcements uh, for going forward, uh, which will cover really 2021 and most likely 2022. And then... Uh, yeah, uh, you can purchase the house from either me or CV through our websites. Uh, my website is artofdrewzucker.com, and I am on Instagram as DrewZuckerArt or on Twitter at Drew underscore Zucker. I think that's it. All right. Thank you, guys. All right. Well, that was awesome, guys. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for uh, taking us behind your counter and giving us a little peek at what the create the indie creator side of the industry is like. That's going to wrap things up for us this week. Thank you for listening. And until next time, the horror, the horror. <laughs> this show is part of the geek nerd network. Geek nerd network. Find more shows like it at geeknerdnetwork.com. This is Jen. Well, I'm glad you asked. Fandom is your obsession with TV, movies, comics, and books. Fandom is debating whether or not Goku or Superman would win in a fight. Clearly, it's Batman. Fandom is about liking things. Join us weekly on Fandom as we talk about all of that and more. Subscribe at fandompodcast.com. <laughs>